Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 215. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. I don't know about you guys, but my hands are about as red and raw and dry as they could possibly be, because even though I am an habitual hand washer, I have never washed my hands as much as I have, or used as much um, of the hand sanitizer, and my skin looks like something that was unearthed in, like, uh, a pyramid. I mean, we compared hand skin the other day, (laughs) and I look like I have the skin of a, I was going to say an 80-year-old, but um, you said yours look like a mummy, so that sounds older. Yeah. (laughs) The the thing is, I I actually do have the skin of an 80-year-old. It's it's just in a box under the bed. Mm -hmm. So I made a couple of trips out this week because my, uh, my day job is considered essential, which is just a... Um, a fancy word for sacrificial. Um, and so I ha- I've been wearing rubber gloves mm-hmm. and I, um, because of the dry skin, I have some hand lotion. So at least some good has come out of this whole thing. Now people won't think twice when they see that I've got rubber gloves and lotion on my dashboard. That's right. So that's a good thing. I'm looking for any kind of positive thing that I that I can. It's a nice silver lining. It really that you've is. Found. Yeah. Cat got all emotional the other day over the garbage truck showing up. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Which I found uh, just endearing as hell. And I'm like, what? Why you're crying? Is it because these people are out doing their job even though there's a pandemic? And you said that and the fact that it it just sounded like life was normal. And I so get that. <sighs> You know, we overlook things. I every once in a while it occurs to me like, holy crap, I have running water. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm just really excited about it. And so it's just one of those things that 
you know, your blessings become more apparent to you sometimes than others. Yeah. Whatever. I think, I think being grateful and, and showing gratitude for the things that we do have and the positive things that are in our life is, is really an important way to get through this. It, it, this is not an ideal situation, of course, mm. by any stretch of the imagination. However, no matter how bad it is, somebody else has it worse. And right. that's I'm, a that doesn't mean that your hardships are invalid. It just means that, you know, it's important to step back and take note of what is good. Well, I'm hoping that one thing that's good is your upcoming story. See how I did that segue there? It's uh, from my, my no. radio days. I'm not going to allow it. I'm going to go back to <sighs> things being the, the way that they are right now and mm. discuss the length of your hair. Just no, real quick. God. We're going to touch base on this. It. I am encouraging a full-on like growth. I want 1970s Jay hair back. <laughs> and, um, I mean, but not like, but no. I want it like all the way around. When so you it's say not Jay, just long in the back. When you say Jay, you, obviously you, you mean me. Um, but somebody wrote a message and said, uh, why does she call you Jay? I thought your name was Jethro. It's, it's the initial, it's the initial J, not the name J. Just like J, J, G. J, G, right. Yeah. It's yeah. also why no one knows that my dog's name is Bandit. Because we call him Banjo. <laughs> I, don't even get us going on that. It's not important. <laughs> what I do know is this. Um, yes, I'm going to grow my hair out. Yeah. It's going to be magnificent. I am so excited to see the sheer girth of this hair because I know at the length that it is now, it's so big and puffy and you have <laughs> so much hair that I think when it's long, it will just be absolutely insane. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm really looking yeah. forward to it. At, at, at one point, at some point when my hair gets long, it starts growing like horizontally out yes. of the side of my head. Very it, excited about It's a about remarkable this. phenomenon. Anyway, what you got for me? Listen, stop trying to redirect me back to story time. Story I need to talk about your hair. No, it's story time. <laughs> story right. time. Ben Siegel was born into a family of Austro-Hungarian Jews who immigrated to the U.S. in 1903 and settled in Manhattan's Lower East Side. Very early in his life, he uh, worked to escape his impoverished upbringing uh, by way of crime, and like burglary and other uh, protection rackets to get money. So he became someone who would go to to street peddlers, let's say, with their carts full of goods and say that he could offer them protection uh, for a dollar a week. And when they asked what they needed protection from, he would light their cart on fire. <laughs> yeah. And this was a common practice in those days. Just make it clear that he meant, you know, from gangs mm -hmm. slash him. Mm -hmm. He left school and joined a gang on Lafayette Street on the Lower East Side of Manhattan and, uh, like I said, was taking part in thefts and teamed up with a friend named Mo Sedway. And they started doing this protection racket thing together. Ben Siegel had a criminal record dating from his teenage years. In fact, he started so early and became so intense, so young, that people thought he was crazy. And they called him names like crazy as a bed bug, uh, which eventually made its way to Bugsy. Bugsy Siegel. You got it. Uh, in his teenage years, rape, murder, they were not strangers to him. And when he befriended a guy named Meyer Lansky, joined him 
into becoming a small mob. Uh, they got into gambling, car theft, and Lansky saw a need for the Jewish boys of his Brooklyn neighborhood to organize. And the first person that he recruited for his quote-unquote mob was Bugsy Siegel. The Bugs and Meyer mob was known to be responsible for the killing and removal of several rival gangland figures. And Siegel was also a boyhood friend to Al Capone. When there was a warrant out for Al Capone's arrest on a murder charge, Siegel actually set him up with a hideout with his aunt. So Al Capone's hanging out with Bugsy Siegel's aunt. You know, I'm sure there were doilies at her house. (laughs) Well, yeah, doilies were huge. In those days. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, now, didn't uh, like Al Capone, he was Bugsy's pal and ran with him in New York. And then he went, of course, to Chicago. We saw Al Capone's furniture from his jail cell when we went to the East Alcatraz Museum in Tennessee in Pigeon oh, Forge. Man, yeah. that was one of the best museum trips that we've ever taken. That was so satisfying. Yeah. Yeah, he had it made when he was in prison. Except, you know, once the syphilis started eating his brain, that that kind of ruined it for him. But uh, anyway, back to Bugsy Siegel. Oh, yeah, okay. So by age 21, Siegel was making money and was not afraid to show it off. Uh, People thought he was pretty handsome. He was very charismatic. He was very likable. And he bought an apartment at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and a home in Scarsdale, New York. He wore flashy clothes. He was uh, frequently seen in the nightlife. And because Prohibition was in full effect, uh, the group joined with Arnold Rothstein in establishing a business-running bootleg liquor all along the East Coast. Bugsy uh, and company decided that they needed to move this to the West Coast. And I don't think it was unrelated to the fact that it was reported Bugsy had his eye on Hollywood and always kind of wanted to be an actor. And maybe it was just kind of the vibe that he was into. So anyway. He was a pretty good-looking guy, too. He had that uh, matinee idol look about him. I don't know what that means. Matinee idol? I'm guessing like a movie actor. Yeah, that was uh, like what they would call leading men when uh, back when they did movie matinees and stuff. So, oh, yeah. This just in, I'm old. <laughs> so. Setting up in California, he set up gambling dens and offshore gambling ships while consolidating uh, the prostitution, narcotics, and bookmaking rackets that he already had set up. Now, he was married at this point. He had kids. They moved out with him. And he maintained this very extravagant lifestyle. He bought an estate. He was big on the Hollywood social scene. He hung out with Cary Grant. Frank Sinatra, uh, Jean Harlow, became the unofficial godmother of his young daughter. Wow. And like I said, there was word that he was interested in that scene so much because he wanted to be an actor. He wanted to be part of that whole Okay, okay. So he he took the money that he made with all of this racketeering Mm -hmm. and set himself up in Hollywood to live the Hollywood, the movie star lifestyle. Exactly. All right. In the late 1930s, he began dating actress Virginia Hill. And in 1945, the two moved to Las Vegas, where Siegel began working toward his dreams of building a gambling mecca in the Nevada desert. So the funding came from the Eastern Crime Syndicate, 
construction of the Flamingo Hotel and Casino began, but it was under Bugsy Siegel's supervision. So what year was this that, that they started the uh, construction of the Flamingo? Uh, 1945. 45. Wow. In my mind, for some reason, I, I always think of that period of Las Vegas history as much earlier, that, that Vegas has been around from the, since the 20s, but, but no. It, not really. Not yeah. really, no. no it's it, pretty it was, fresh. It was, a, it was a desert town. But yeah, like I mentioned, um, he moved to Vegas with Virginia Hill, um, and it wasn't until the next year that he got a divorce. Okay. From his wife. Uh, oh, okay. He was still, okay. Yeah. Alrighty. Um. So, on the evening of June 20th, 1947, Siegel was reading a newspaper at his girlfriend's Beverly Hills home. About a week before, they had been in a fight, and she got pissed, and she went to Paris. She was like, I'm not hanging out with you. you you've done me wrong. Whatever it was. It was probably because he's a philanderer. As Wouldn't it be great to get pissed and just say, you know what? I'm going to Paris and get on a plane and go. <laughs> at this point, I'd love to get pissed and go to the convenience store. Well, I understand that, But, yes. uh... Yeah. Nope, I'm just staying home. And I understand the convenience store is lovely this time of year. Oh, sure, mm. yeah. It's cherry blossom season. Authors Ed Reed and Ovid Damaris in their 1963 true crime book, The Green Felt Jungle, um, which talked about mob influence and political corruption in Las Vegas, they talked about what happened that night in Beverly Hills. At 10.45 p.m., a sniper armed with a 30 caliber military carbine rested the barrel on the crossbar of a rose-covered pagoda. Uh, there was lattice work, and apparently that's perfect for sticking the barrel of a gun through. A tip for you up-and-coming snipers. And fired nine steel-jacketed slugs through a window <gasps> into the living room of this mansion. Nine. Nine. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm saying yes, nine. I didn't think you were disagreeing with me. It's in in German, nine is nine. Oh! See, anyway, okay. You multilinguist. So, Siegel was reading a copy of the LA Times. He was shot four times, twice in the head and twice in the torso, while sitting on a sofa. The drapes had been open, and so he was right in the, the line of sight, I guess. One headshot, prepare yourself. This is not great. Okay. One headshot propelled one of his eyeballs 15 feet away onto the tiled dining room floor. Oh, man. Of the five shots that missed, one destroyed a marble statue on the grand piano. Another punctured a painting of a nude holding a wine glass. It sounded real garish in there. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> okay. All right. It, it does sound like uh, a scene from The Godfather. Indeed. Most researchers speculate that Siegel's criminal associates were fed up with the soaring costs of the Flamingo at that time. It was originally budgeted at $1.5 million. The building project soon proved to be a problem as construction costs soared to more than $6 million. Mm. And when it was discovered that much of that was attributed to Siegel's theft and mismanagement, uh, people became enraged. Uh, Lansky, who is now a very prominent member of the Eastern Syndicate, uh, especially, was not having this betrayal. That's amazing because Bugsy and Meyer Lansky, I remember reading this somewhere, they were, pardon the expression, thick as thieves. Those They, they were like childhood friends. They yep. were best buddies. They got into the big time mobs by performing acts of um, loyalty together. Right. 
For example, they oversaw the killing of a guy who had not paid a rival gang. And the, the gang leader told his henchmen, does he have gold teeth? Yes, he does. Pull him out. And then left. Mm-hmm. And the guy that was supposed to pull out the teeth, was he couldn't do it. You know, but Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel had witnessed this and they walked up and said, we'll do it. And they pulled it out and and gave it to the guy and that guy got them in. So these two were tight, tight, tight. Oh, yeah. But missing four point five million dollars will make you not tight, tight, tight. In those days, that was a ton, ton, ton. These days, it's a ton, ton, ton. Yep, yep. Again, I'm just excited about the convenience store at this point, guys. Now, one other theory posits that Siegel's death was the result of his uh, excessive spending and the mob was, the or the board of directors of the mob, met in Havana because at that point, Lucky Luciano was there and he could attend that, that mob meeting and participate mm-hmm. and that that meeting led to a, what's the term, a contract Contract. on his life. Really? I hadn't heard that. According to the mobmuseum.org, about two weeks before the Flamingo opened in late 1946, just after the end of World War II, in late 1946, just after the end of World War II, uh, Virginia Hill and her military brother were in front of the Flamingo, and they had argued about Bugsy having beat her up. And her brother said that he was going to kill Bugsy. All right. And that was witnessed. Yes. Okay. And he's military. That's right. Did he have a sniper background? Mm. Mm. Other theories include a mob struggle over a horse racing wire service, which Siegel also controlled. Another theory is that Siegel was shot to death preemptively by Matthew Moose Panza, the lover of Mo Sedway's wife, B, who went to Panza after learning that Siegel was threatening to kill her husband. Mm. So it may have been some sort of triangle situation. It sounds like there are several legitimate motives. Right? To uh, knock Bugsy's eyeball into the foyer. Well, yeah, he was doing a lot of stuff to make a lot of enemies. Sure. My guess is the theory that I like the best thus far is the uh, brother of his girlfriend who was military guy. That makes sense to me, more so than Meyer Lansky, even though, you know, maybe there was some financial shenanigans going on, and that certainly can bring a friendship to a halt. Sure. It just seems to me that it's more likely that uh, it was the brother of his his girlfriend. All right. Just my take. (laughs) Well, the day after Siegel's murder, David Berman and his Las Vegas mob associates, Sedway and Gus Greenbaum, went into the Flamingo and they took over operation of the hotel and casino. Okay, I'm going to change my theory because they clearly have the most to gain. Oh, yeah? Maybe it was a combination. Maybe they hired the guy from the the brother of... I mean, he already had a reason to want to do it. And a rifle. Right? Who knows? Who knows? Nobody knows because the murder's never been solved. Oh, man. I hate these. I know. Um, Interesting. The Flamingo's still a thing. It doesn't look anything like 
it did no. back in the day. Um, it's really fun to like look back at those original photos because it does. It kind of looks like a Route 66 roadside oh, diner. Oh yeah, it does. And then you look at pictures of it today, and it's like, oh yeah, no, that's Vegas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I get yeah, it. yeah, no. Originally, you know, it was the first resort casino. And literally, it was just plopped down in the middle of the desert. There exactly. was nothing there. And the reason they chose that, obviously, is because gambling and uh, prostitution within certain boundaries was legalized at that time. And the mob saw an opportunity. Of course. Um, so on the property at the Flamingo Las Vegas, between the pool and a wedding chapel, is a memorial plaque to Siegel. Um, he is interred at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, which I'm sure he'd be pleased with. Uh, but as I said, the murder remains unsolved. Amazing. I did see some uh, murder scene photos of Bugsy Siegel, but I, I had no idea that he was missing an eye. Pretty gruesome, huh? Well, yeah, what I saw was pretty gruesome, but they were taken from a particular, well, the ones that were shown were taken from a particular angle that kind of minimized the gore, I mm. guess. And they were in black and white. Yeah, that'll make a difference for, for sure. <laughs> and now, that thing in the middle. I found this list on smartrapper.com. These are, in their opinion, the worst rapper names ever. This is going to become a series of <laughs> things in the middle because, wow. Number five, Shorty Shitstain. Yeah, that has limited marketing potential. Number four, Crumb Snatcher. <laughs> Real intimidating guy. Wow, wow. You don't want him at your breakfast table. Number three, Titty Boy. That reminds me of uh, a name that Boyle would call himself on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Nine -Nine. yeah, okay. <laughs> Number two, Lil Poopy. L-I-L, <laughs> yeah, apostrophe. Of course. Lil Poopy. And number one, MC Poo, the baddest rapper in the Hundred Acre Woods. <laughs> oh, is it P-O-O-H? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's an A.A. A. Milne reference for you, which would be a better rap name, actually. Probably. A.A. A. Milne. In the house. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Matt. Did you know that wombats poop cubes? Nope. Never heard that before. Did you know the unicorn is the national animal of Scotland, Ken? I didn't know, nor do I care. Neil, did you know that Liechtenstein is the only doubly landlocked country in Europe? Jeff, isn't that an American pop artist? Well, actually, it's both. If you want to learn things like that and more, join us each week on Triviality, a pub trivia-style game show podcast where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Listen in each week to answer general knowledge trivia alongside exciting guests from around the world. And we're here, too. Join us every Tuesday for new hour-long episodes of Triviality, plus tons of extra theme content on everything from The Office and Lord of the Rings to science and geography. And sometimes we even do sports. Find us on all your preferred podcast apps and take part in the fun of playing bar trivia without the need to wear pants. Real mature, Jeff. Forget it, Neil. It's Triviality. Did you know the curator's favorite color is blue? Of course you didn't, because you never ask about my feelings. This is The Box of Oddities. We get an email from Alice, uh, who starts <laughs> off by saying, My son has a treehouse and a very large maple tree in our backyard. A few years ago, a neighbor boy shit in my son's treehouse multiple times. As neighbor boys will do. I told the neighborhood boy to clean it up, but he just threw it out into my yard. As neighborhood boys will do. At that point, I channeled my inner wicked witch. I asked him if he knew what lived in my maple tree. He said no. So I told him that a dream troll lived in my tree. I explained that the troll only came out at night, but that it could see everything beneath its branches, good and bad. I told him that the dream troll came out at night and gave bad dreams to the children it saw doing bad things, and good dreams to the children it saw doing good things. I asked him if he wanted the dream troll to bring him good dreams or bad dreams. He said he wanted good dreams, and I said, then don't be bad. And don't let the dream troll catch you shitting in my son's treehouse. <laughs> From that day forward, that particularly poorly behaved crotch goblin never set foot in my yard. Alice, if you lived in my neighborhood, I would make you captain of our neighborhood patrol. Absolutely. Well, get set to have your mind blown. I love having my mind blown. <laughs> okay. I'm going to talk about mind-bending philosophical and or quantum phys uh, physics theories. And sometimes they kind of overlap and combine. Okay. All right? Okay. Have you heard of the big freeze? Um, yeah, that was a movie from the 80s, no, right? No, 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 no. It may have been, but that's not what I'm referencing, although it sounds mind-bending. <laughs> the big freeze is a theory of the final state that our universe is heading toward. Assuming the universe has a limited supply of energy, right, of as course. it expands, the energy begins to be exhausted. The universe will gradually slow down to a frozen state. In other words, the thermal energy that's produced by the motion of the particles will slowly wear out. Right. And that means that eventually this particle motion will slow down and one day everything will stop. The last moment of existence will be frozen in time for eternity. Oh, this is an interesting thought. 
The first thing I thought, though, is if I were alive at the time, my fear would be that my last frozen eternity moment would be on the flush or or something dignified like that. Oh, of course. Yeah. That makes me think of uh, Superman 2. I always think of Superman 2. My favorite of the Superman anthology. I don't know. I like, I like Superman 3 with Richard Pryor. That was a classic. Have you heard of solipsism? I don't think so. I didn't know this is what it was called. I'd heard of this theory, but I did not know it was called solipsism. It's a philosophical theory that suggests that nothing exists but the individual's consciousness. Okay, yep. Kind of a uh, Matrix-style thing. Kind of, yes. The thing is, it's impossible to verify anything but your own consciousness. You can look around and you can see things and touch things and smell things, but it's all in this, according to this theory, manufactured and created by by your consciousness. It's, again, kind of uh, akin to that are we inside a video game situation. Now, think about a dream that you recently had. What's a dream you recently had? Um. (laughs) Well, your dreams at times seem very real to you while you're dreaming, correct? I don't do Have I dreamt before? I can't remember. You're dreaming right now and you do not know it. <laughs> According to this theory, is it not possible that everything around you is nothing but an incredibly intricate dream? You think that reality is real because you can feel it and you can taste it and smell the things around you. But when you consider that people who take LSD, for example, or Uh, The shamanistic potion ayahuasca, they say that when they have visions, Mm. the most convincing hallucinations they can touch and smell and hear. And we don't claim that their visions are a reality. But what's the difference between your brain perceiving touch and scent and all that in a dream or in, in what we call reality? Yeah. Which parts of existence can we be sure of and not doubt? Probably none. I know that when I wake up in the middle of the night, uh, and this happens probably three or four times a week, uh, and I tootle my way into the bathroom, Mm -hmm. I always um, acknowledge something in my bathroom that I I wish weren't the case. Like, oh, I should really clean that bathtub or Mm -hmm. the floor is cold or something that's not pleasing to me. uh, That So it's kind of like my top it reminds oh, me like I'm actually inception. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that way I'm like, oh yeah, no, this isn't a dream, and I'm not urinating in my bed <laughs> because I'm so afraid of doing that. I know you are. <laughs> the point of this is that each of us can only be sure of our own thoughts. Right. Plato and the logos. Now, what got me started on this whole uh, exploration was we were on Jim Harold's Paranormal podcast mm. this week, and check that out if you have a chance. Great show. Much better when we're not on it. Don't judge Jim by the episode we're on. (laughs) He does a a bunch of great podcasts. Jim Harold's Campfire. If you like ghost stories, you can check that out. But he mentioned during our conversation, Plato's allegory of the cave. Mm. Now, everybody's heard of Plato, not the moldable child's clay. That's Play-Doh. Plato was one of the world's or is one of the world's most famous philosophers. And like all philosophers, he had a few things to say about the nature of reality. And he argued that beyond our perceived reality, there lies a world of perfect forms. Everything that we see is simply a shadow, an imitation of how things really are. And he illustrated it with Plato's allegory of the cave. Here it is in a nutshell. He invites us to imagine a cave, and in it there are people who have been chained and are unable to turn to any other direction except the inner wall that they're facing. 
Because of the chains, they can't see anyone behind them, nor can they see the cave's exit, which is directly behind their back. The only source of light in the cave is a campfire that is behind them. Between the people and the fire, there is a cover behind which there are other people that go about their daily business. So picture it like they're chained with their back to a wall, but on the other side of the wall where they can't see, people are walking by, just living their everyday life, but the fire is casting the shadow on the wall. So they see these shadows. The chained ones are observing a blank wall and can see, because of the fire, just the shadows of what reality is really happening behind them. As they're walking by, some of the people behind the cover are talking to each other while others are silent. The voices echo in the cave while the shadows dance on the wall. This makes it appear to the people that are chained as if the shadows are real and talking. Those in chains have no other things to do except to discuss the shadows, so they try to guess which shadows will pass next and in what order. Those that have the best guesses are granted with honors and get more acclaim than the others that are chained Mm -hmm. to the wall. He compares us to those chained to the cave wall in his metaphor. It's kind of like an ancient Greek version of the Matrix. It's Yeah. I mean, we all just do our best to decipher what is happening around us. It could be that we have a lot of it figured out it could be that we have next to nothing figured out plato argued that by studying philosophy we have a chance of catching a glimpse of how things truly are and discovering the perfect forms of everything we perceive not just the shadows on the wall and i think that's really cool and he thought of that a bajillion years ago He was also a monist and said that everything is made of the same substance, one single substance. According to him, everything from stars in the sky to dust under your bed consists of the same basic material, but in a different form. And then centuries later, when we discovered atoms and molecules, it is, for the most part, proven to be true to a certain extent. Then we get to presentism. We perceive time as a linear Reality. Right. There was before, there is now, there is next. Right. Exactly. We divide it into the past, present, and the future. Presentism suggests that the past and the future are imagined concepts, while the only real thing is the present, this moment, this moment in time. In other words, you're listening to the Box of Oddities right now. The Box of Oddities, this episode, will cease to exist after you stop listening to it. It only blinks back into existence once you start listening again. Well, I mean, when we talk about quantum physics, yes, and we know that there are some really bizarre things that happen when we talk about atoms that can exist in more than one place at once. They behave differently, whether or not they're being observed. They can exist or not exist at all. You are referencing the dual slit hypothesis. Though I was going to call it the the split hole hypothesis, (laughs) which is different. uh, Name of your sex tape. Which which basically says that... um, Photons are both a particle and a wave at the same time Mm. until they're observed and then they collapse into a particle. The future is just as imaginary as the past, according to St. Augustine. He claimed that time cannot exist before and after it happened. Okay. That's a deep thought. 
Indeed. And finally, we've all heard of the multiverse theory. Mm. Parallel worlds, in theory, are worlds very similar to ours with little, or in some cases, large changes or differences. In a parallel reality, you might be living as a monk in Tibet. In another, you might have died in a car crash years ago. In yet another, you might never have even been born because your parents didn't meet. I know my parents have pondered that at length. <laughs> What would it have been like? Yeah. The multi-universe <laughs> theory suggests that there could be an infinite amount of alternate realities all swirling about bumping into each other. Academics at Griffith University in Queensland, Australia, just published a paper that suggests that not only do these parallel universes exist, but they also can interact with each other. A professor Weisman and his colleagues from uh, Griffith University in Queensland proposed that the universe we experience is just one of a gigantic number of worlds. Some are almost identical to ours, while most are very different. All of these worlds are equally real, exist continuously through time, and possess precisely defined properties. He goes on to say, the many interacting worlds theory may even create the extraordinary possibility of testing for existence in other worlds. Theoretical physicist Michichio Kaku wonders if deja vu is, in Ooh. fact, related to perceptions of parallel universes. Are they like bubbles floating about when they bump into each other and your existence in one universe connects somehow to your existence in another universe? Is that what we perceive as deja vu? I love this theory. I like that idea a lot. So there's a few things to ponder before you drift off to sleep tonight. I got my information from learningmind.com and ultraculture.com. I love this stuff. That was real interesting. And I was just saying today that we should rewatch Fringe. Now more than ever, I want to rewatch Fringe. And we certainly have the time while I grow out my, my locks. <laughs> I'm so excited. I want to grow it out really long so I look like the actor that played Bob in Twin Peaks. Oof, I don't know. And I'll climb up over the edge of the bed when you're sleeping, and I'll go, Katrina, where is Josie? Um, you wouldn't be able to pull off that look because his hair was greasy, and you know that you can't go more than like a day and a half without <laughs> washing your hair. I have respect for my follicles. <laughs> hey, you guys, thanks for hanging out with us. We look forward to it, especially now. We really look forward to to connecting with you and uh, we appreciate you taking the time download the uh, the podcast uh, do remember that once you stop listening it, it ceases to exist right so maybe you could take this opportunity to memorialize us by going to either uh, iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen um, and uh, leave us a positive review oh I yeah. see what you've done there yeah, because that's the only thing that's real <laughs> right <laughs> absolutely Thank you guys again so much. It is better than a trip to the convenience store. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. 
Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.